You're listening to Rocks Across the Pond, the curling podcast that goes around the globe looking for the best stories in the world's coolest sport. We have curling news and views for everyone, whether you're playing in your Thursday league or following your favorite teams on tour. Now here are your hosts, Ryan McGee and our professor of Peel, Jonathan Havercroft. Hey everybody, welcome to Rocks Across the Pond. It is a curling podcast coming to you from Richmond, Virginia. My name is Ryan McGee and joining me in Southampton, England is Jonathan Havercroft and Jonathan. uh, We are a curling podcast, but you wouldn't know that if you listened to this episode. Yes, today we're going to space. We are. We're going to... We're going to review a sci-fi book on a curling podcast. Uh, I honestly, it's been a while since I've been this kind of excited to do uh, an episode because I think it's going to be uh, it's going to be very different. Uh, it'll be kind of cathartic because we've actually had to talk about curling lately because they started playing. <laughs> <laughs> so two tournaments is enough for you. Two tournaments is enough for me. It's time to talk about not curling again. All right. <laughs> So we do, we have a guest since we are talking about a sci-fi book. We're not just talking about any sci-fi book. We are talking about a sci-fi book written by Canadian champion curler Ed Lukowicz. And here to discuss the book uh, is someone who knows absolutely nothing about curling, but he does know a lot about sci-fi. We are joined today by Andrew Heaton. Heaton is an author, writer, and political satirist. He hosts two podcasts, including Alienating the Audience, which I listen to, which takes a deep dive into what science fiction is really about. He also hosts The Political Orphanage, which I don't listen to, but I assume tries to make politics digestible through humor. Uh, He is the thinking man's nerd, and I have known him since he was 14. So while I have plenty of stories that I could tell you about Heaton, I would just be putting myself at the scene of the crime. So I'll leave it at the fact that Heaton is my friend. He is very funny and he is very adept at operating a military grade searchlight. Welcome Heaton. Did you ever think you would be appearing on a curling podcast? No, this is not where I'm pleased with how my life has turned out that this is now the apotheosis of my media career. However, it is not what I thought would happen. I do have a curling anecdote. I know like I know that it's that thing where you have a broom while you're skiing. Like I know that's the thing. Uh, I um, I got invited to apply to be a writer on John Oliver, and and it was something about the Olympics. And the joke that I had in my application script was, whenever I watch curling, I like to pretend people are taunting a Roomba by sweeping before the thing can get to the thing. Because I, it's it's that to me was a very funny visual image of them going like, "Quick, sweep before the Roomba gets here." Uh, so that's what I always think whenever I see curling, and that exhausts my knowledge of curling. But it's nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's uh, it's great to have you here to bring us uh, some much needed sci-fi knowledge, rather than Jonathan and I just uh, taking guesses at this. But so the reason we are reading this book is it was written by Ed Lukowicz. The book is trillionist it is a it's a novel so it is it is fiction uh and ed wrote this book uh uh, good question well actually that that is a topic we will discuss when we get into the book Mm uh this is the trillionist the pin name that ed uses for this book is sagan jeffries i guess ed was a he he says that he was a big fan of carl sagan growing up and it's why he chose chose the pen name Sagan Jeffries. So Ed 
wrote this book as Sagan Jeffries, uh, mainly because he'd already published a bunch of curling books as Ed Lukowicz. Um, this is not just a novel, but uh, it is also kind of reveals Ed's theory about creation and the makeup uh, of the universe. He told the Calgary, uh, uh, Calgary Herald that the first draft of the book was completed in 1998, but this was published in the fall of 2013. Ed got interested in science fiction while reading sci-fi novels while writing alongside his dad uh, on the family farm and decided that he didn't believe in the Big Bang. So he came up with his own theory and then wrote a wrote a novel about it. Uh, for On the curling side of things, Ed won two Canadian curling championships and won the 1986 World Curling Championship. He also won bronze at the 1988 Olympics when curling was a demonstration sport. Jonathan, do you have anything to add, add uh, about Ed Lukowicz, the curler? He, I, he also wrote a lot of good curling books back in the 80s and early 90s. So he wrote The Curling Book, which was like an early classic with Paul Gausel. Uh He did Power Curling, which I really liked, which was actually has like an early version of Mixed Doubles in there. He's got like all these different versions of the game he proposed. And he also had one with a lot of sports psychology called Curling to Win. So he's actually written and published a lot of books. Uh, he's like a writer on top of being a curler. All right. So this is The Trillionist. It really dives into Ed's trillionist theory, which is revealed throughout the book. Uh, it's also the the main point of his website that he's created, which is which is just a fantastic trip, uh, trip through time into early internet. Oh, man. If you happen it to is, go to Ed's, Ed's Trillionist It, it is so GeoCities. It is just like, imagine a bunch of waving flag gifs and like just, it, it, you know, flashing buttons and like a, a cartoon mailbox that says email. Like it, it's, oh man, oh, it's just, it's like walking into a time capsule. It's fantastic. Heaton, it looks like something that we would have created in in class in high school well i was i was talking to jonathan before because i went down a uh i i went down an ed lukowich rabbit hole on his youtube page and, uh, and by the way i everything i've seen so far i like ed lukowich i'm saying this from a, a place of love and admiration the the youtube channel looks like a public access attempt at getting a show picked up by the Sci-Fi Network circa 1997. Like, it's a very, very specific, like, very, like, at one point, like, there's animated curtains that come up. There's this, like, really cool graph lady, like, like laser graph lady, and it is, like, like, whoa, song playing, and then it just stops. There's just, like, a head, a hard stop in the two seconds, and then this guy talking on, like, a, a horrible microphone recorded at his car. Uh, about what he thinks about black holes. I mean, it, it's like it's, it it is it is sort of its own parody. It's great, and Ed's great because his voice it his voice is very soothing. Mm -hmm. Like it it really draws you in. He uh, he calls games for the World Curling Federation during the Olympics, and those are always my favorite ones to watch because you know the Olympics are usually on late at night, and you've got Ed kind of lulling you to sleep mm -hmm. while watching curling. It's pretty great. Yeah, and I like he occasionally instead of, instead of cosmos he says cosmos. Like, uh, the Trillion Theory believes the cosmos is a, tr a trillion years old. And you're like, oh, nice. Okay. Canada. Jonathan, <laughs> is that a Western Canadian thing? Yes. That's actually, like, Calgary has a very specific accent, i got to say. Because my sister lives there. And Calgarians, like, Canada's a pretty consistent accent. But for whatever reason, Calgary has a weird 
inflection. I can't figure out why. Because they're the Texas of Canada. There, I noticed it. It's like whenever, whenever sort you meet of, Canadians. Yeah, kind of is. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it's a, it's it's like a really big state with a lot of oil money and cowboys. And like whenever you yeah. talk to like Canadians and, and you're like, like the, 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 the conflict tends to be between Quebec and the winners. Uh, and, uh, and, but then like when you get into the winter folk, the Anglophones, you're like, which one are you irritating? They're all like, uh, Alberta, Alberta is the one that wants to be its own country. And I'm like, got it. We got one of those. We got one of those States in America. Well, what holds Canada together is everyone hates Toronto. So like <laughs> Quebec and Alberta don't get along, but it's like the enemy of my enemies, my friend. So they right. both hate Toronto and that, that's what keeps the country unified. Mm-hmm. Alberta is basically Texas if Texas decided to eradicate all of the rats. <laughs> yeah, there's no rats there. So it's a good it's a good virtue. <laughs> Frosty Texas. So Ed's theory. Do we want to get into Ed's theory real quick before we yeah. get into the book? And by the way, let me just say right now that we are going to get into spoilers. If you want to read The Trillionist and not have any of it spoiled for you, please stop this podcast right now. Get Ed's book. Read it. For those of you that were with bated breath waiting to read The Trillionists by Ed Lukovich, be aware we are going to spoil that that reading that was no doubt on your your bookshelf. Can, McGee, may I may I chime in very quickly? Big fan of this guy. Yeah, I I really like I would I really like him. I think it's super cool. I enjoy the cosmology of this book tremendously uh, for a couple of reasons. Um, I, I think uh, like I I enjoy. Thought experiments. I think that they're really creatively simulating. Um, so, like, my favorite radio program, all-time favorite radio program, is Coast to Coast AM, which is like the BBC for people who've been abducted by aliens. There's lots of ghost stories and Bigfoot sightings and, and farmers that, you know, date women from Reptilia, Zetacon, or whatever. And it like I never believe any of it. I think it's all bunk, but it's really fun. And, and I, f- I feel like for an adult to keep my mind plastic and to keep it uh, to, to be able to like really approach new situations, it's great to be able to go into these worlds and go, cool. What like what's your deal? The Earth is hollow. Awesome. All right, I'm on for the next thirty minutes. I'm with you. The Earth is hollow. At the end of the thirty minutes, I'm going to put my sane hat back on. But for thirty minutes, I'm going to join you. And so I got a giant dose of that from Ed going on his website. And I was like, this is super creatively stimulating. And I really like, and honestly, from a sense of genuine admiration. I like that he's doing this because real change in the world, real like provocative paradigms that alter the landscape of, of civilization, they come from the fringe. They come from peripheral people who are considered lunatics by the mainstream. That was how the heliocentric theory displaced the geocentric theory. It's always the weirdo and or the heretic that gets burned at the stake that's crazy until he's not crazy. And it has to be that. And like, and uh, while I've never met Ed Lukovich, he seems to be like a guy who is like, no, I believe this thing. It's not the mainstream thing. And I don't mind if you all think I'm crazy. I don't don't feel shame or embarrassment. I really want to do this. And I think that's super cool. I wish more people were doing that. Except with vaccines. (laughs) Thank you. Let's get into the Ed Lukowicz trillionist theory here. So Ed, and this is this this theory is kind of explained piece by piece throughout the book. I will say one really cool thing about the book is it was kind of ahead of its time because it was published in uh, 2013, but it had QR codes throughout the book that sent me to pages that he had set up on his website that kind of helped explain even more 
uh, what the theory is and kind of what I'm reading at that given point in the book. So uh, Ed, a little bit ahead of his time there in 2013, it was, uh, you know, QR codes were kind of new back then. So good for Ed. Um, so Ed's theory is the universe is a trillion years old. Black holes created the universe and they recycle it about every 15 billion years. Uh, black holes spin light into matter uh, and one exists at the core of every planet, moon, and sun. And the universe doubles in size every time it is recycled. So that's kind of that's kind of the, the base of the theory. Am I, am I right there, Andrew? Yeah, that, that sounds right to me. Now that I'm a convert to the TT theory, uh, yeah, the, the trillion theory. Uh, yeah, I think that's right. It, it's almost like his his cosmology is predicated on black holes being sort of the the mover shaker of of the, mm -hmm. the universe. So, you know, we, we're all operating with the Big Bang theory as the predominant theory, and the idea that there was a singularity that it, that had all of the the matter and energy in the universe, and it exploded, and out of that explosion came everything we've got. Um, and he doesn't think that's the case. He thinks that. Uh, what what happens is that there's this massive amount of light uh, that's just sort of endemic to the universe and that black holes suck in enough light and spin, as you say, to basically convert it into matter. And the bigger black holes have so much matter that it, it compresses and becomes a sun. The smaller ones just have enough matter that they become moons. And that when you see a supernova, uh, the, the supernova is basically... Um, all of that matter finally escaping that like black holes can basically hold on to things for uh, 15 billion years and then they lose their grip and then all of the light escapes. And so the black hole is not something that's been created. It's just something that's been declothed so that black holes are naked black holes and that suns and moons and, and, uh, and uh, planets are, are clothed black holes, so to speak. And that when these supernovas happen, they almost uh, like reproduce so like a sun will will blow up, the energy escapes, the black hole will separate, and then because the the, uni the outer edges of the universe are filled with light, they will be attracted to that um, through gravity and thus pull the universe out greater and greater so that it's constantly expanding and has existed over a trillion years and is constantly recycling itself. Jonathan, are you with us so far? Yes, I am with you. <laughs> you Okay, the thing is, though, what, well, I do, what... Well, I don't buy this. I was like, you know, if you told me this in high school, I probably would have been like, okay, I guess. I don't know. I, like, I'm an artist. I'm an, art, I'm an arts guy. I don't know any of this stuff. Like, if you told me that it was real, like, now I'm like, well, I know the guy's a fringe nut. But if you just told me he wasn't a fringe nut, I probably would have bought it 100 years ago. But do we want my critiques now or later? Let's let's get into let's let's add let's let's add a layer, and then okay. we can get into your critiques yeah. before we go in and we we go through. Um, the actual book itself, because even more so than just the theory itself, which is the universe is a trillion years old and how the universe recycles and expands. Uh, what I was more interested in was how the trillionist theory explains life itself, which is that you have the artisan who is the creator of the universe and he exists in something called the Empyrean. The Empyrean is the highest level of existence. It is beyond our universe and it's inhabited by these spirits. These spirits do their work within something called the firmament, where they are reincarnated and they exist to record the existences that they experience in the universe as visitations. So like you yourself, you are uh, part of a visitation by a spirit, and then he is going to go and record what he observed uh, during your experience uh, here on Earth. 
these visitations can be as, you know, a bug, a human, a plant or a robot. doesn't matter. Like every single entity has like someone ex experiencing everything that they do and then they're going to go and record it. Uh, each spirit has their own personal archive of all of its visitations, uh, and those visitations are supervised by higher-ranking spirits who are responsible for individual galaxies. As someone that deals with data a lot and deals with uh, making sure that, that, that data is clean um, and making sure that, that humans are entering data correctly into a system, I, for one, am totally behind the idea of our God, the bureaucrat. <laughs> is he, point of clarification, is this Ed Lukowicz's theory, or is this the, is this the cosmology of the novel? Because when I went on his YouTube page, I couldn't find anything about the spirits and things, so I wasn't sure if that was the, the fictional element on top of his cosmology, or whether that is baked into the model. I didn't, I, I wasn't able to tell. I don't want to put words into Ed's mouth, but I kind of got the I got the sense that it was both. Okay, that was the vibe I got from the book and the website. Yeah, because I think I think the artisans kind of a, a deus thing, right? Like a like a watchmaker universe where there's one person who kind of sets things up and gets it going, right? Yep. I like the idea of the bureaucrat because, like the you know the the kind of the the main Judeo Christian idea that there's an all-powerful, all-knowing, really competent God that's designed the universe as part of a master plan. I look around and I'm like, nope. If there's anybody intelligent here, this is clearly the work of a committee. I've seen the work of committees before, and the world <laughs> that I'm living in is pretty much the work of a committee at best. And so, like, yeah, bureaucrat God, that makes more sense to me. It's like, why is why is life on Earth the way it is? Well, we we didn't fill out this one form in triplicate, yeah. so we didn't get the good stuff. Like, look at a platypus. No, that unicorn. thing's not real. Like, like <laughs> a duck beaver, like some kind of weird pervert duck beaver that lays eggs. That is the work of a committee. That's not the work of evolution. A lot of people had 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 input into creating the platypus. Right. Yeah. Well, we've got all these spare duck parts we didn't use, and Bill is <laughs> man. Bill's just got a lot of those duck subsidies he's got to get rid of, but. Man, people love beavers, so we're just going to combine them. And uh, you know what? People love eggs. Uh, and Susan won't shut up about eggs, so we'll make a duck beaver that lays eggs. Yeah. All right, Jonathan, you have been patient. <laughs> well, I think I think it comes down to Andy's question, right? So if it's a work of fiction, then I'm cool with it. Um, I think when it... <laughs> okay, so I was texting you, and I was like, that the one thing... Like, this is the every... So there's two pet peeves every academic has. One is about once a month, some rando will email me their, their theory about something. And sometimes it's, like a, it's a massive tome they've written or manifesto. And then they just, they're like, here, I fixed it all for you. And it's, sometimes it's interesting, sometimes not, but it's so it's kind of, you kind of get those kinds of things. The, the other pet peeve, I guess that academics have is the, the confusion of what a theory is in kind of common speech versus what a scientific theory is, right? So common speech theory is like a hunch. I'm like, oh, I notice a bunch of things. I'll, I'll construct a story to arrange the things that I observe in the universe, right? And that's that's narrative and that's, that's fiction. That's, that's fine. I think sometimes it can go too far where just people kind of close themselves off and then can't quite touch reality. But a scientific theory, like the Big Bang theory is not just a bunch of hunches. It's like a lot of observed things as well as a very kind of sophisticated and elegant mathematical formula that ties together all the laws of physics, right? So 
Um, if you're going to refute that, you have to kind of, first of all, grapple with what that theory already says and all the evidence out there. And the book doesn't really do that. It just goes, big bang, wrong, I've got another idea, right? So to me, that's where I'm like, well, then it's not science. So that's, that's, if we bracket that, then I think we can kind of look at it as a work of fiction, and that's, that's fine. Well, and Ed did write a later book that kind of lays out trillionist theory as a theory, but we're not really looking at that book today. We're looking at the, the sci-fi novel. So I will admit that I have not read the, the, the book that goes more into his theory. So I don't know. He may have a really cool you know, math problem in there that does explain it, Jonathan, but we're not, I, I'm not going to read it because I'm not an academic. I like sci-fi, so I read this version. All right. <laughs> Actually, Jonathan, can I, I want to pick your brain about something because this is something that I have not figured out how to sort in, in my life and in the media that I cover. Um, there is a logical fallacy of deference to authority, uh, which can either yeah. be deference to tradition or just deference to authority in and of itself. The authority says such, or it can be deference to the group. And the spirit of the scientific revolution is antithetical to deference to authority. At the same time, though, I as a layman am like, if there's a room full of experts and I don't know what I'm talking about, I'm just going to default on the experts. And so uh, on on the one hand, the idea that um, something is right because it is orthodox seems to be anti-scientific. At the same time, if a bunch of experts agree with something, then I'm like, well, I guess I should go with the experts on that. Is that just something that like I as a consumer should should put in my headspace of, of default to authority because I don't know any better? Uh, or Or am I falling into that logical fallacy? I, I don't know. Well, I think it, I think okay. So there's an appeal to authority, which is like appeal to authority, yes. right? So that like, you're yeah. absolutely right. Yeah. So so if I were just if I was a scientist and I were just to go, well, this is right because Einstein said so. Yeah. That's fallacious, right? Mm-hmm. I, I think that the the big problem is this, and so in order to make a contribution to cosmology or political theory or any kind of academic field, you do need about ten years of like training. Right. It's just it's like I, I I'm kind of pretty egalitarian in the sense that I think most people have the the intellectual tools to pick up any academic discipline, but it's the work and the time that where you acquire it, right? And so uh I like I couldn't submit a paper that would refute Einstein's theory of relativity, but certainly someone who's like been trained in theoretical physics could submit a paper that at any point in time and kind of um uh, you know, criti- critique that idea, right? So in a certain sense, science is very open. There's actually a thing called the archive where basically anyone can go upload their paper. Uh, they have a, a bit of a vetting mechanism because they want to keep the cranks out. But basically mm-hmm. one of the things about science is it's always open to refutation. There's uh, kind mm-hmm. of a famous philosopher of science called Popper, who we, one of the things he talked about like, in terms of the philosophy of science is a, a scientific theory actually has to be falsifiable, by which he means mm-hmm. that if you're going to say, I think this is true, you also have to specify what would have to be the case for it to not be true. And then if someone right. can provide evidence that refutes that, then it's refutable. If not, he would just say, then it's the folk theory. And he was kind of quite harsh towards a lot of the social sciences because he said a lot of social scientific theories like Freud or Marx aren't falsifiable. Right. Um, so, I, so I guess the point's this, is that anyone could go and participate in that. But as we said, I think the last year has been the perfect case in point is that we have a lot of people who Google something and think they're epidemiologists. God, yes. Right? Or, or I'll, I'll say, but, Jonathan, in, in my work, because I do political media, 
I am not going to claim to be an economist, but I am economically literate in that I know what terms yeah. mean, and I have read multiple books by economists. And if you have never read a book on e economics, I do not want to hear your hot take on economics. In the same way that I am not going to go mouth off to people about my thoughts on industrial mechanics, knowing absolutely nothing about industrial mechanics. Like, I just, I don't want to hear your hot take if you've never read literally anything other than I'm right.com. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, th I think that th this is the case with anything. And actually, I think most people can, if they just kind of identify a couple of high quality popularization books, can kind of get themselves up to speed in any topic pretty quickly. Like competently, maybe not to make a contribution or original discovery, but they can certainly get yeah, to the, be versant or to, to, to be, yeah, to, to, be, be to be versant in the subject. And get yeah. a sense of what's going on, right? And so, mm -hmm. I mean, there is plenty, there are plenty of good books out there. Like, there's one I read about a decade ago, like called The Universe from Nothing, which basically it's by a cosmologist, and he basically explains actually it is possible to have a universe from nothing, right? And he basically explains here's how physics explains that idea. I couldn't summarize it to you, but it's like, it's kind of like, it's a pretty, you basically walks you through at a level to be like an undergraduate course, right? Well, so it's, how good is the author at like curling? That. He is not yeah, good so at curling, no. Oh, well, then I don't care. <laughs> so here's, yeah, so here's my question for you, Jonathan. Ed Lukowicz had been reading sci-fi books and novels for about 40 years by the time that he wrote The Trillionist. Doesn't that count? I think I think it shows because it's actually a fairly well constructed sci fi novel. So if you only just assess it, it's like it's you know it's a it's a good like it's you know it tells a story. The story is compelling. It's original. So like from that perspective, it's like it's I, as a story, I kind of like it. But science fiction isn't science, right? Or is it? No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that was, I think, what what McGee was starting to allude to is the 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 cult thing that that you mentioned prior to uh, me me sidetracking with Jonathan is the, the sort of uh, you know when when you're writing science fiction and you're you're promoting a mystical cosmological worldview that there starts to be a kind of quasi religious or cultic element to it. I mean, I don't think this is cultic at all because I think he's I think in a certain sense, so I don't think it is in the sense that he's not like, I'm right, you're wrong. I think I kind of read him as saying, here's my idea of how the universe came to be, right? And there's lots of people who have stories like that, right? Like there's lots of different alternate ideas about that, but you're not doing science when you do that, right? You're creating narrative or myth or you kind of, you, and in a certain sense, he doesn't really want to, so, like, he doesn't really want to, so the Big Bang Theory is there to try to tie together a whole set of puzzles in physics, right? That's, that's basically, they basically extrapolate back from the observed back of the expansion of the universe back to a zero point in time. And like, this is what it has to be. And they tie together a lot of observed evidence as well as kind of mathematical formulas of, of the laws of physics. That's one thing. There's lots of different stories that people tell about where the universe came from. And physics doesn't answer that. Right? In a certain sense, they're just kind of agnostic on that. They're just like, this is what we know, and we can get back to, I think it's like one trillionth of a second. It's like a very, like they basically model everything back to the moment of cosmic inflation, right? So it's like, they've got a pretty robust theory till there, and then it breaks down. But that they don't, they're not trying to answer the question of where the universe came from and what it all means, right? They're just like, this is, this is how we tie all the laws of gravity, the different forces, all of this stuff together. So they're doing something totally different in my mind. So we will we will get into the world of the trillionist and 
a lot of things are pretty familiar to us now because as Ed builds his world in the Trillionist, uh, it seems uh, pretty similar to what's going on here on Earth. So the story takes place primarily in the city of Port Turn City on a continent called Bella Yario on the planet Titan. Titan has three moons as opposed to our one, and it orbits a sun called Sintosi. When the story begins, we're at a technology level that's kind of similar to 1920s Earth. So you have automobiles are now widely available to citizens. Uh, Titan has other continents, uh, including one that has pirates that attack uh, Belayario uh, pretty regularly. And as I said, everything really similar to Earth, except for uh, everything's kind of given a different name. So Andrew, I'm kind of interested... When it comes to world building in sci-fi, like how tough is it to go beyond what we already know and just like renaming it and rearranging it? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I'm I'm not sure whether I I haven't decided whether I like what what uh, what Ed did or not in it. In that, um, it's always from the perspective of this other planet, and and I and I I find that a little bit distracting in that my my brain is going into overdrive going. Okay, how are they human versus how are they aliens? Are humans going to factor in later? Um, and it, it turns out, it really, they're just they're just a stand-in for humans. They don't, you know, there's no, they're not telepaths or whatever. There's not like a certain difference, um, a la Star Trek. Um, nor did I think that there was that much indirect exposition either. Like I think a lot of authors, like uh, like Robert Heinlein, are very good at indirect exposition, where they're telling a story and they'll just mention. That's back when we were at war with the skinnies, and they won't explain it, but they'll move on, and it makes the world feel as if it's larger, as if there's just certain touchstones that everybody knows about. Um, and he didn't do that so much. I actually thought, I thought it was interesting in that he, he was more of like, I, I felt he kind of uh, was capturing sort of early 20th century uh, rapid technological change in a, in a decent way. And it, it occurred to me reading his book that I've never read any book previously that talked about the invention of toasters before where it's like this newfangled thing where electricity <laughs> comes out of the wall and we can make toast. But he, he is talking about that. Like the, the protagonist's um, parents and grandparents, there's a generational divide between the farm family that, that is like, we have to put fuel in a horseless carriage? Uh, and the, you know, the, the, the dad who is, uh, you know, plugged into this whole thing. So I, I thought that was interesting. And it was almost, uh, it, it, was, it was almost like he could have prefaced the book by going, um, I didn't want to set this on Earth because I didn't want you to have pre-existing ideas built into your mind but it's basically just earth just assume it's earth yeah and that was part of having the qr codes within the physical copy of the book and i'm 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 an old so i went online and ordered a physical copy of the book and so i was able to scan the qr codes with my phone and see you know maps of the continent and all that so that was kind of neat uh for my for my old eyes to see that um but yeah we're basically basically earth with different names and three moons did you all feel like the world building was like I I I it seemed to me that it was just a, a what do you call it um, analogous as opposed to world building like I'm I'm not like in my mind I can picture Vulcan and I can picture Quonos there are lots of alien worlds where I'm like oh yeah I know what that place is like but like uh, Trident I'm like mm, Atlantic City. Like, like I don't like it's like yeah. the, the world he's painted, the, the world painting itself does not stand out to me. It's much more of the cosmology and, and the character than than the, you know, the civilization he's building. 
Yeah. So is it, I mean, is it lazy world building or is lazy world building just a part of some sci-fi novels where you don't want to give, you don't want to make the, you don't want to make the reader to do too much heavy lifting. You want to just make it to where, you know, it sounds vaguely familiar rather than, you know, having to, you know, create a completely different world. I mean, it's the same way with, with game of Thrones or with, you know, middle earth, like things are just different enough but you don't have to do a whole bunch of heavy lifting to try and picture something completely out there. Well, plus, if, if the goal of the book, as I suspect it is, is that he was obsessed with Trillium theory and wanted to be able to lubricate Trillium theory with fiction, then doing a lot of world building would end up distracting from the central impetus of the book, which is to push this cosmological theory. Whereas if he'd spent a lot of time really getting into the culture of these two places and like, oh, but the pirates have these rituals and that kind of thing, then it, it, would, have, it would have been less direct in terms of being able to assemble his, his theories about black holes and uh, the, art, uh, the artisan and so on. Yeah, I think, I mean, there's a world building that's going on with this multi, like the, the dream state that you're going to get to in a second and like all the different portals to the different worlds and the shadow, like all that stuff's that's like a pretty complicated world, but yeah, the, the world of the planet itself is pretty, I think it's designed to be recognizable because everything else is not recognizable. Let's put it that way. All right. So in the book itself, our main character is named Sage Rojan, and I think it is Rojan. Uh, I couldn't tell if it was a soft J or not. In fact, I, what, I went through the same YouTube rabbit hole you did, Andrew, like just trying to get Ed Lukowicz saying the name of his main character just so that I could know, but I think it's Sage Rojan. Uh, but we start with Sage after he's just been born, and from a very young age, he demonstrates awareness and capabilities that are well beyond his years. He reads and speaks like an adult at age two. His mother has to make him promise that he won't run off on his own and run away from the house so he doesn't get hurt. Um, Sage also has horrible dreams that he can't remember and mumbles to himself and thrashes around when he's asleep. Uh, he also has a terrible temper, temper, and eventually he has to go see a psychiatrist when he's in high school at age 12. Around the same time, we are introduced to another character named Tamara, who is of similar age to Sage and similarly advanced for her age. Uh, the psychiatrist convinces Sage to try lucid dreaming to uncover what might be happening during his dreams, and it is during the lucid dream state that Sage encounters what he calls his shadow, which is the presence that he feels when he lashes out and what has really been driving him to learn and develop at such a rapid pace. So I, I like that plot device. I'm kind of, a, it's kind of um, like Jungian psychology plays the idea of the shadow and that kind of pops up in Star Wars a bit with like the dark side. So I actually like this, this kind of plot device is like this other thing inside your split psychology, if you will, or this other entity that's with you, the shadow entity, and that's kind of your dark side. And there's a, there's a little bit of a coming of age thing going on. Like, what do you do with uh, the negative emotions in your life? So I, I thought that was a pretty compelling, compelling plot point. So shortly after this, Sage is approached by an industrialist named Duggan Bristol, who is basically set up as like the richest and most powerful person on the planet. And he's approached by Duggan Bristol to work for his company and turn his inventions, Sage's inventions into reality, uh, which we assume will give Bristol even more money and power than he already has. Um, 
as Sage goes through and invents these things and the shadow continues to push him and give him more knowledge to build all these things, Sage's inventions take uh, Titan from 1920s tech to the space age and then the internet age uh, by the time he's around 20. So this is a span of about eight years. Uh, we go from 1920s tech to having the internet and space shuttles and all kinds of cool stuff. Then we run into a little bit of politics. And in order to get the king of Bella Yario to allow him to start the space program, Sage has to design warplanes, which are then used to massacre the pirates that had been invading from the other continent. Uh, this kind of has a huge impact on Sage, where he realizes that uh, not all of his inventions are going to be used for good. Well, I'm just glad that that's science fiction and that there's not some sort of weird interconnection between, you know, defense contractors and politics in my country. Uh, it would be chilling. Kind of like a Black Mirror episode. <laughs> no, politics has never had any influence on science at all, ever. Uh -uh. Well, I, I, I will say there's um, the, the pace of innovation was interesting in there because I went back and forth on, is this an insane acceleration happening or is this somewhat realistic the the insane acceleration element was just um it, would it be possible for people to learn these skills quick enough to to jump these things uh and possibly i mean like like technology is a uh it, it's not linear it's it's uh, it, it it accelerates very rapidly and you think about like when i was when i graduated college this is in 2007 the internet had been around for the same length of time that uh, in the lifespan of laundry machines, if you if you were getting laundry 22 years in or whatever, you'd have to unscrew the light bulb in your ceiling and screw your laundry machine into your ceiling because it hadn't occurred to anybody to make a plug on a wall yet. Like like So things move very quickly um, in terms of like where we are with the internet. Uh, like it's, it's like it, it, it all goes very, very fast. And so the innovation in there was interesting. Uh, and um, uh, just kind of getting into the question of, you know, what, how, how he, I mean, he is adopting this model of like, you know, kind of the Tony Stark, brilliant Leonardo da Vinci character from which all, all things spill out of their genius. But, you know, interesting in terms of the, the innovation there. And Lukowicz does kind of address that in the book because he, they bring up the fact that, you know, they can't mine the minerals fast enough to build the circuit boards to make all of these things that, um, that Sage is coming up with to bring us cell phones and all this stuff. So the shadow, um, basically knocks Sage out in, and sends plans for this device to the manufacturing team. The manufacturing team sends it out in a bunch of boxes, the shadow makes Sage assemble this huge thing, and it turns out that it's this machine that, very similarly to what we do with what what the Trillionist theory thinks of black holes, this machine takes in light, spill, uh, spins it into matter, and produces whatever minerals it was that they weren't being able to to mine fast enough. So they do kind of uh, Lukowicz does kind of deal with that uh, that point mm. in in the book. So we continue to build a bunch of stuff. And eventually, once the space program is up and running, the Shadow starts getting even more and more impatient with Sage, because clearly there is something that the Shadow has been kind of building towards, and the Shadow can see its finish line coming up. So he's pushing Sage harder and harder to build new stuff and use this machine to spin light into all this matter. So eventually, 
Shadow has ta- Sage take the machine into space beyond the three moons of Titan and has, sa- has Sage set it to produce some unknown substance. Eventually, we learn that the machine is producing dark matter and the shadow has done everything wrong to where uh, has done something wrong to where now the machine is producing dark matter at a much faster rate than the shadow anticipated. Uh, It seems like the shadow was trying to make a moon in order to prove himself as an artisan and be able to like advance in up the up the hierarchy to become to go from being just a little spirit that is there recording what Sage's life is like to becoming an artisan. But instead, he's made a black hole that is now probably going to inhale Titan and its sun and kill the entire galaxy. Shoot. Oops. Man, sometimes just stick in middle management. You know, like I, this is probably something you got to deal with when you're making nuclear weapons and things. If like, if I make a really big nuclear weapon, maybe I'll become the top nuke scientist. And it's like, dude, you got a health plan. You got a hot wife. Slow down. Enjoy your time at the Manhattan Project. Andrew, what is that theory that a person will be promoted to their level of incompetence? Yeah, that, I, I, I've heard of that from Douglas <laughs> or from Scott Adams. I don't know if he came up with it or not, but he mentioned it a bunch like when he was really putting his shoulder into Dilbert. Yeah, that idea that you basically tap out it like basically like you, you finally stop at your level of incompetence. Yeah. And that appears what the shadow has done here. So. In order to save the galaxy, uh, we learn that Tamara is actually a higher-ranking spirit who has figured out what the Shadow was doing and was sent down to Titan to observe uh, what the Shadow was doing to Sage. Uh, Sage winds up having to uh, basically do an old-school gym class rope climb up to the Empyrean to beg the artisan to save the universe. He winds up in high court debating against his Shadow he was charged with a bunch of spirit felonies. Uh, the shadow is about to win the debate and Sage says um, something that convinces the artisan to save everyone. Sage wakes up and the black hole is being removed by the artisan. And it turns out that he and Tamara are allowed to live together on Titan for the remainder of Sage's visitation, which is about a hundred years. The end. Uh, the thing ended kind of rapidly. <laughs> <laughs> Having explained the cosmology, he's done. And he's like, yeah, and the plot finishes. Thanks, guys. Yeah, the pacings, I I think he could have, as much as the rapid technology expansion seems fast, I think that part could have been a bit shorter. And then actually, from the shadow, the black hole would have been a a nice longer third act, I think. Can can I ask a couple of clarifying questions? Now, clearly, I read this entire thing front to back multiple times, but there's a lot to unpack here. So I want to make sure that I got some of this right. When the shadow is making all these things happen, have two of these spirits been put into the same body, one being shade and one being the shadow, and they're vying for control? Or is it more like it's shade, but there's the shadow character that's like locked onto him? And, and so is coming to him in dreams and things to try and come up the corporate ladder? Like is, is, is the shadow in his body? Yes. So Sage is, Sage is a new spirit. So this is Sage, the spirit's first visitation. He is a rookie. He has been given Mm -hmm. the earthly vessel that is Sage Rogan, and he doesn't really have the, the spirits all have names that are like, um, numbers and symbols. Um, so using Sage and the shadow, uh, 
makes it much easier here on a on a podcast. So Sage uh, was there for his initial visitation. He's a rookie, mm-hmm. uh, but the shadow like latched on at the last possible second before they were like about to send him off uh, into existence. So the shadow like winds up f- having to fight Sage for. So he's kind of like possessed uh, by this this, earthly... this veteran yep. ladder climber. Okay. Who do we think in Earth history might have had a, a shadow like this that was like giving them access to knowledge that that they wouldn't have had otherwise to like help them advance as a as a as a life form? That at yeah. the very beginning, the two that come to my mind are Leonardo da Vinci uh-huh. and LeBron James. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I mean, if this came out now, everyone would say Sage is Elon Musk, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, you know who, who would have taken that position would be pretty much all of the ancient Greeks and Romans because they had the idea that um, if you made a particularly good piece of art or you, you did something that was particularly brilliant, that that was because a muse had given it to you. And it meant that while you could be celebrated, you were not fully responsible for the works that you had produced if they were brilliant, nor were you totally responsible for a lack thereof if you quit doing them, because it meant that the muse had abandoned you, and that you had a a, 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 a genius. I think they probably would have said daemon, like D-A-E-M-O-N or something like that, which we now say demon, but different cosmology. But like the root between genie and genius is the same thing, because the idea was that there was a a entity that was giving you brilliance and that you were the vehicle by which it was manifesting in the world, not that you were a standalone autonomous Elon Musk character who was able to create things out of the ether, but rather you were something of a conduit. Yeah, that kind of fits what we've got here. Mm -hmm. So here's a question. You know, Sage really enjoyed getting at at first up until they they killed all the pirates, uh, really enjoyed having all the fame and fortune that came from, you know, helping the people of Titan through his inventions. So the question is really like, who had the God complex here? Was it Sage or was it the shadow? Well, he kind of resists it, right? Yeah. I mean, he fixes it. <laughs> but, I mean, there's, there's different moments where he resists it. A bit. Go ahead, Andy. Sorry. I was going to say, I, I think about this whenever you see some story about a really obnoxious boy band member, doing something horrible, like Justin Bieber, like, you know, he gets stopped because his planes full of pot and everything, and every, I don't know, he's, he's sleeping with multiple women. And I'm like, right, but if you'd given me unlimited money, women, and drugs when I was 18, I would have been a monster. <laughs> like, it's, like, like it, it, it's, I, I now have a lot of experience under my belt, so I'd like to think that now I have altered my, my moral trajectory. Also, I'm tired and haggard. But if you were to remove that from me and put me in a 17-year-old body, yeah, I think I'd probably do the same stuff. I mean, to me, one thing that's interesting is Sage, uh, Sage is like the most famous, powerful, wealthiest 18-year-old on the earth, right? And he doesn't do, he doesn't sleep with anyone, doesn't get any drug addiction, doesn't use his wealth or power for, he doesn't get corrupted at all, which is, I think, interesting. Whereas the shadow thing is clearly kind of super corrupting in a certain sense. So. Mm. So that's actually probably the most inaccurate thing in the book is that Sage like just wasn't doing a bunch of coke and yeah. sleeping around like, like, when he had more money and power than any eighteen-year-old on the planet. I, I, I want to do a comedy sketch someday where like like two spies are meeting and two American spies are meeting in Russia, and the manager is like, uh, 
Um, all right, have you encountered any honeypots? And the guy's like, what's a honeypot? And he's like, well, that's like when, when the Russians send like an attractive woman to seduce you. And he's like, what? That, wait, what? We can do that? Like, like just, F, wait, oh, where do I find this? Is that built, like, is that, because I knew I got a 401k, but like, is the honeypot guaranteed? Like, no, 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 you're misinterpreting this, John. You're not supposed to, oh, well, man, okay. <laughs> I guess my, my other question on this, Andrew, since you're, you, you know a lot more about science fiction than I do. I watch it mainly for, um, for the entertainment aspect. And you seem like you really dive, especially on your podcast, you dive a lot deeper into, you know, the, the meanings behind things is, you know, we said that, you know, Ed Lukowicz has not started a cult yet. Mm. Um, but how similar is this book and using fiction to drive a theory? Like, like how similar is this to L. Ron Hubbard's Dianetics? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think that it is the same. I think Dianetics is actually the same as the Trillionist in that regard, in that they are both writing science fiction with a cosmological worldview in mind. The difference is, from what I can tell, not the work of fiction itself, nor the goal of the fiction, nor the, the alternate cosmology being proposed, but rather how uh, Ed is interacting with his fans versus how L. Ron Hubbard was interacting with his fans. So to my knowledge, uh, Ed, Ed Lukovich uh, uh, seems like a nice older gentleman who pokes around on the internet writing these nice stories, but he's not living in a trailer having 16-year-olds feed him grapes. Uh, he's not, he's, he didn't, he's never attempted to come or to, to purchase his own yacht to sail around the world with a bunch of people that believe he's a prophet. Um, nor do I think he's claimed that. I could be wrong here, but like I, I had difficult finding anything involving the ethereal realm and whatnot on his website or on YouTube. I only saw that in the book, right? So to my knowledge, Ed has never claimed to be a particularly, you know, um, he, he just claims he came up with this theory. I don't think he's claimed to be a prophet in any capacity, whereas that's basically what L. Ron Hubbard was claiming. L. L. Ron Hubbard had a lot of flim-flam in there. Plus, like, you, you hear all these stories where, like, L. Ron Hubbard would, like, just be at a cocktail party, and he'd be like, oh, I, you've been to the British Museum? I love the British Museum. I, uh, You know, last time I was at the British Museum, two scientists ran out and told me I had a perfectly shaped head. And he would just constantly like like create these weird name drop scenarios where he'd like be at a, like a kitchen table with a redhead and go, you know, I'm I'm a redhead too, and uh, I am told that all redheads have a similar sire. They have the same sire. We are brothers deep down. Do you have any money I could borrow? Like like there was always this kind of con man <laughs> operating in uh, in L. Ron Hubbard that I I do not gather is operating in um, Ed, Ed Lukovich, which only speaks to the honor and sportsmanship of curling that is proliferate in both its players and in its fans. <laughs> so so basically if Sage had uh, climbed up the, the gym class rope ladder and gotten to the top and met the artisan and the artisan was a two-time Canadian curling champion, <laughs> then we might start. <laughs> right. Then we might start asking questions. I, I think I think the relevant questions would be if if uh, Ed had started saying, not only do I know this cosmology, I know this cosmology because the artisan has told me that I am uh, a 40, 40 trip spirit who has come here and it is my job to take mankind out of its idiocy and into the, the bright, shiny realm of truth. And therefore, we should all live on my commune. Uh, by the way, I'm going to allocate wives like a resource uh, for the greater good. 
and, uh, and, and you know, everybody's going to play curling, but also I'll be in charge of our fighting. Like, that kind of thing, I think, would be the, the point to, to really worry about it. Whereas, from what I'm reading, he seems like a guy with a GeoCities website that kind of... I, he you This is it, Miggy. I think he, from, from where I'm looking, L. Ron Hubbard was styling himself to be a prophet, and Ed Lukowicz uh, was styling himself to be Copernicus. Ed Lukowicz uh, thinks that he is a a, a Copernician character or a Da Vinci character. He is a uh, a man who is breaking the mold and is thinking outside the box, as opposed to being one who has been touched by the gods with a message to distribute to the rest of mankind. Okay, so we're not going to get any mini-series anytime soon about the Trillionist and people trying to escape uh, Trillionist theory <laughs> starring um, actors from Breaking Bad. I doubt it, although, I mean, I... I it's too late for me to become a high muckety buck in Scientology. Maybe I can get in on the ground floor in this if it happens. I don't know. We'll see how cute the people are. That's true. The you know, trade, uh, you know, get in on the ground floor of Dogecoin and get in yeah. on the ground floor of Trillionist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, he's not taking any moon. money aside from the books, right? So there's mm-hmm. not like any shakedown going on here. And I think. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, he just wants to sell books, man. Well, I think he just wants to sell his idea. Like he's like, I've got this yeah. idea and I want to share it with people. Which I can relate to uh, here as we, we do this podcast about curling, right, Jonathan? <laughs> yeah, and we're not trying to start a cult either. Are we, Ryan? Uh, how much money is there in cults? There's a lot of money in yeah, cults. And it's real easy <laughs> to move taxes around. They're very good for... T- That's like, true. If you're, man, if you're wanting to... Because you, like, you just registered as a church or whatever, and, now, and like you don't, I don't even take income. I just happen to use the church's car and house. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can make a lot of cash there. And again, I don't know if I mentioned this, but the whole allocating wives thing, that they, if that appeals to you, uh, you you've, you've got that going for you, too. I think the name Church of the Rock is already taken, unfortunately. <laughs> Which one of us is the prophet? Um, you're the professor of Peel, Jonathan, so now you're the prophet of Peel. So I've got to like go up on a mountain and come back down with like two granite tablets of, of laws or something? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Jonathan looks more like uh, Alan Watts than McGee does. Like you, you could if you if you had like kind of a 1960s outfit, you could kind of pull off spiritual guru, Jonathan. You could you could make it work. You've got good. Your your beard has excellent sagely coloring to it. Well, it's you know a year of lockdown and the <laughs> the barber shop being closed for four months helps a bit. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. We, we all look slightly more Moses like. We all look a little bit like Doc <laughs> yeah. Brown. Yeah. <laughs> Well, guys, this was a lot of fun. Andrew, tell everyone where they can find you. Uh, I highly recommend that your listeners check out Alienating the Audience, which is my sci-fi podcast. Now, I will admit, I want to be very upfront with your listeners because we're, we're engaging in a relationship uh, together. There's not as much curling on my science fiction show as uh, this fine program, nor even on today's fine episode. However, if you do like science fiction, I invite you to check out Alienating the Audience, where, as McGee points out, I really enjoy looking at the the deep things in science fiction. I like looking at Dune and going, I think this is really about OPEC. I think this is an oil story. Or looking at Star Trek and going, oh, man, there's some good Aristotelian ethics in this. Let's dive into that stuff. So if you like that, uh, check that out. And uh, if you like... Humor in politics, and you're not super into red team versus blue team, check out my other show, The Political Orphanage. 
I will say my favorite thing about alienating the audience is once per show, there is at least one little factoid that you give that is definitely a, a win a beer at a bar factoid. <laughs> uh, and that's, that's my favorite thing about it. Uh, Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. I highly suggest that you get, uh, you get Ed on alienating the audience. I'm, I'm genuinely tempted to. I want to talk to him about all this <laughs> stuff. I have a lot of questions about black holes. All right, Ed, if you're listening, hit uh, hit Heaton up on Twitter. You are Mighty Heaton on Twitter, correct, Andrew? That's right, yeah. All right, thank you, sir. Uh, really appreciate it, and uh, we'll uh, talk to everybody again real soon. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Rocks Across the Pond, a curling podcast. If you enjoyed this show, we ask you to please leave a review or tell a friend about us. Your referrals to friends and family are the greatest compliment we can receive and is what allows our show to grow and share our love of this great game. You can find all of our past shows and blog posts at rocksacrossthepond.com. If you have a question or comment, you can reach us at rocksacrossthepond at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you again for taking the time to listen to us, and we will talk to you again real soon. 